As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? This week on Catch and Shoot 2.0, Steph Curry dropped 50 on Trey Young and the Hawks. Nikola Jokic has beef with Markeith Morris. And the Sixers are finding ways to win, even with the Ben Simmons drama going on. Sounds like a lot. But hey, speaking of drama with superstar sidekicks, we go deep into detail on the Scottie Pippen biography, Unguarded, with the book's co-author. But first, Darlene, let's get to it. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and Shoot 2.0 goes well with both red and white and is perfect with the workout of your choice. Our hosts are Aaron Berlin, a former Kansas Jayhawk who believes the Orlando Magic will win the championship. Eventually. (laughs) His partner is Otto Strong, a man who has covered the NBA since before Dennis Rodman got his first tattoo. Fellas? Welcome to Catch and Shoot 2.0. I am Aaron Berlin. My partner, Otto Strong, is out this week. He's out on the left coast. So in his place... We got the man, the only, he is the double B. He is the king of content. He is the guy with endless titles. His name is Bruce Bernstein. Bruce, what's going on? I've got Otto bound and gagged in the closet. I wanted to be on the show this week so bad. Uh, In about 30 minutes or so, I'll let him out. But yes, it's great to be with you, AB. As always, it's a treat. Otto was not allowed to be on the show this week because we just need more Bruce content and you can (laughs) never have enough Bruce on this program. And Bruce, I have to ask you this. We talk about the NBA, uh, what probably 40 weeks out of the year, give or take, right? We hardly ever spend any time on college basketball. Full disclosure, we taped this show on a Tuesday night. The college basketball season officially tipped off tonight. My Kansas Jayhawks are playing the Michigan State Spartans, so rock chalk. I have to ask you, before we dive too much into the NBA and we just completely forget about the college basketball season, because it happens, right? If you watch the NBA, then when you watch college basketball, you're like, oh, wow, people watch that. Uh, <laughs> but anyway... Do you have a favorite college basketball memory from all your years working at the four letter network or just as a college basketball fan? You're not going to like this, Aaron. I never like anything from you, Syracuse. You're not going to like this. It's, it's the 2003 NCAA championship with Carmelo Anthony, the freshman leading the orange to a glorious NCAA championship over the Kansas Jayhawks. Sorry, Aaron. I will say this. My Jayhawks didn't deserve to win that basketball game. They missed, I think, north of 15 free throws in that basketball game, and they ran the most predictable play to end the game with Hakeem Warwick blocking Michael Lee. So I'll tip my cap to you on that one, Bruce. That's a good memory. That's a good. My personal favorite memory is Thomas Robinson with the block against Missouri in Missouri's last year in the big 12 conference before they departed to the sec, Kansas was down 19 points in that basketball game, had a furious comeback in the second half. And, you know, I just like 
watching Missouri fans cry. It happens a lot. They cry about everything, whether it's football, basketball, regardless, it happens. Uh, speaking of Kansas basketball, there are Jayhawks around the association. We know this. There's not very many high-level Jayhawks around the league, except for give or take what your thoughts are on Joel Embiid, what your thoughts are on Andrew Wiggins. But a few of the longest-running Jayhawks currently in the association are the Morris brothers. And I'm sure you saw this the other night, Bruce, just kind of the incident that occurred in the um, in the Nuggets and I believe it was the Clippers game. It was kind of in the waning moments. It was a 17-point basketball game. But anyway, Jokic brings the ball up the court. Uh, there's basically a pass that occurs. Morris bumps him. And then the preceding two seconds are something happens with Jokic. And it almost looked like he snapped or it looked like maybe it was – a domino effect of events that had led up to that moment. And he basically ran over Markeith Morris in that moment. And if you watch just the video in isolation, I think you can watch it and you can be like, oh my, what happened there? What was Jokic thinking? But I'm not going to sugarcoat it. The Morris twins and the Morai, for whatever we called them at the University of Kansas, have been dirty basketball players for a long time. And so I could see this as an escalation of events that led to this moment. But in that moment, what do you think was going through Nikola Jokic's mind? Okay, so it was Monday night. The Heat were playing the Nuggets, and the Nuggets were up by like 17 points, two and a half minutes left. It's basically garbage time. I'm not even really sure why Jokic was still in the game at that point. However, there he was bringing the ball up court and Markeith just kind of flings himself into him with, uh, it looked like it might've been an elbow uh, kind of towards an unprotected area. And, and Joker just lost it. I mean, he took like two, two and a half steps and just shoved him to the ground. Of course, Markeith went down like he had been mortally wounded. Uh, so, probably... so you're saying that was a flop. No, it you're wasn't. Saying a... He was it... doing some acting there. No, it was not a flop. He, he got sent flying, but he stayed down on the ground like like for dramatic effect, I thought. And the crowd is wondering, oh, is he okay? Is he okay? And then he just kind of bounces back up and he walks off under his own power or whatever. Uh, look, Joker is going to be suspended more than likely for one game. Their next game is against Indiana, who has been playing really well lately. But it's a bad deal. It's a bad deal for, for the Nuggets because – First of all, they haven't had Jamal Murray at all this year. And now Michael Porter Jr., who I believe played from Missouri, one of your favorites. <laughs> he's all just coming full circle today. Really? It's like it's like <laughs> circle of life, whatever. So he's going to be out indefinitely because his back, which has been a problem ever since he was in college, yeah. is flaring up. And of course, they just signed him to a ginormous contract, and now he's going to be missing time. So um it's a bad deal for uh, for the Nuggets. They're going to have to play Indiana without him. Uh, Indiana's got a good big man in DeMontis Sabonis. So um, bad well, job I, by Joker. He knows he did wrong. He admitted he did wrong. I don't think he'll do anything like that again. He seems like the sort of guy who learns from his mistakes. So I do have one follow-up here. Yes. And I'm interested on in your take. And a lot of people will sit here and say that like the modern NBA is not a very tough NBA, right? Like it's mm -hmm. uh it's a lot of players that are scared to kind of get their hands on each other, kind of play rough basketball. As someone who has seen decades of NBA basketball and has seen eras where there were actual fistfights that occurred on the court. Do you think there's any place and maybe just 
not moments where you're trying to hurt someone, but where your anger or your emotions do show kind of like how Jokic showed them? Well, they've definitely uh, allowing the players to be more aggressive this year. You've seen it in the yeah. reduced number of fouls being called. Uh, and if you just watch the games, you can just see, I mean, the refs are not calling a lot of the stuff they used to call. So they're allowing some of the physical play to come back to the game. I think as long as it doesn't go too far, it's a good thing because the games are going more quickly. Uh, instead of two hours and 45 minutes, I mean, you're seeing games, you know, finish up like 15, 20 minutes less than that in, in many cases, which is a good thing. But I mean, you're right. I mean, back in the day, I mean, when there were guys like Anthony Mason on the Knicks and Xavier McDaniel and, and, you know, legitimate scary guys, Ricky Mahorn, you know, Bill Lambeer, you know, those guys, those, some of those guys were like, you know, it, under the rules from the past few years, those guys wouldn't even be able to stay on the court because they would have fouled out. So I think the league wants to increase the flow, increase the pace of the games. And so, yes, they're allowing more physicality back into the games and uh, I guess it remains to be seen. Are they letting too much go or is it just right? And everyone's just sort of settling in. I don't know. But neither of those plays that we're talking about were really basketball plays. Those were just straight up emotional, like, you know, guys getting pissed. Yeah, but but I think it's OK for the game to have some of that. You know, I, I thought for, I don't know, maybe two or three years it felt very hands-off, you know, like the NBA had fully gone to a shooter's league and that's, that's not okay because you had negated some of the most important positions in the league. And so it's, I don't know, it's, it's been nice to see because I think a lot of people for a while have questioned some of the intensity of the modern NBA player and, you know, have said that they're all just skill positions. No, they still have that fight. They still have that tenacity. And so I think fans are starting to see it. You don't want to see fights on the court. That's not what we're saying. But if things do get a little bit chippy, it happens whether I'm out playing on the blacktop or if I'm out shooting around in my hoop or if I'm at my softball game last night where I almost got thrown out, Bruce, because I questioned the umpire. Competitive is like the competitive spirit is part of the game and it's nice to see. And I'm happy about it. One thing I'm happy about too, Bruce, this guy did not go to Kansas. He did not go to Syracuse, not go to Missouri. So he's not part of this. He went to Davidson. His name is Steph Curry. He dropped 50 on Trey Young and the Atlanta Hawks. The Golden State Warriors have the best record in the Western Conference. They're 9-1. and one. They've been impressive. It's, it's almost like we're seeing the Warriors of old. Can this team sustain what we've seen through their first 10 games? Their schedule in the early part of the season has not been, like, super tough, but they've knocked over every team they played with the exception of one. Uh I think the only game they lost was in overtime, right? So, I mean, they could they could be undefeated for all we know. I mean, Steph Curry is 33 years old now. You don't think of Steph Curry as 33 years old because he's still so, you know, youthful looking and everything. Um, but he's playing such a great all-around game this year, and he's truly leading that team. So could he put together an MVP type year with what you've seen so far? I would say so far, he's got to be right up there. I mean, I know that yeah. uh, our producer, Dan Kramer, uh, was singing the praises of Nikola Jokic, and his numbers are right there too. But, you know, I, I mean, leading the league in player efficiency rating, third in reboundings, averaging 25, you know, a lot of, lot of assists, whatever. But the MVP generally goes to a team that's got a superior record. 
And so, yes, I could see Steph doing it. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that would just love to be able to vote for Steph because he represents so many wonderful things about the game, you know, both on the court and off the court, Aaron, what, what are your thoughts on Steph? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been a Steph fan for as long as I can remember. And you're right. The, the way he carries himself, um, it goes beyond what he does on the court. You know, it's, it's his shoe line. It's his way that he embraces women's basketball. It's not everything about Steph Curry. It's very much about the people that he touches in his ether or in his orbit. Right. And that's what makes him so likable. And it's also, you know, when the warriors were going through that run where they were every bit as much of a dynasty as the bulls that we're going to talk about later in this show, he would bring his daughter up to the press conference. She would sit there. She would answer questions with them. And like, those are the moments that, you know, we, we know in the NBA and that we appreciate because it, it humanizes them. It makes people feel like, Hey, he's a real person. And I think Steph Curry for a long time has been able to humanize himself and he's been a humble person. And look, he's, I'll, I'll say this. He's one of the best basketball stories that I can remember because he was a skinny kid from Davidson that had a run in the NCAA tournament. That was where his stock risen. He came back for an additional year and then he's overcome adversity in the NBA with his ankle injuries to be cut to do with that Warriors team, what he's been able to do. It is so impressive. And yes, Daniel, our, uh, our producer is nudging us and he's saying almost knocked off Kansas, but they didn't. Bill <laughs> got to his first final four and then went on to win his first national championship. So that's why I can like Steph Curry, but I, I do think he has a chance to be a real MVP because look, the thing we talk about with the MVP voting award a lot is that, you can't give it to the same player over and over and over again, right? Like if we were, if it was always the best basketball player in the association, it would go to LeBron or Kevin Durant every single year. Well, it doesn't. And this Warriors team has had a few tough seasons. And now that it feels like their roster is finally healthy, Steph Curry is healthy. If he can stay healthy and if they can continue to win at this pace, I'm not saying they'll win at what are they at a 90% win rate right now over their first 10 games. Yeah. They're not going to, they're not going to win. 90% of their basketball games, but, but they win 72%, 73% of their games. He'd be right up there with it. Right. Especially oh, yeah. in the Western conference. That, that'd be impressive. Um, so yes, I do think you can do it. I do want to touch on one more thing because I think you probably really have some pointed topics about this. We all love your C's. We talk about your C's a lot, right? The 76ers are, actually having a little bit of resurgence. They've won six games in a row. They're succeeding despite everything that's happened with Ben Simmons. Look, I'm kind of tired of talking about Ben Simmons and I'm waiting for that situation to work itself out before I really talk about more, but Austin fans love to talk about trades, especially when their team is struggling. There have been reports out of the one and only Sham Sharania that maybe Boston and Philly have been talking a little bit about a connection there between those two. And it might involve Jason Tatum and Ben Simmons. I'm not saying this will ever happen, but if it did as a C-span, as a C's loyalist, where would you stand on this? I would not be in favor of that. I think that uh, Ben Simmons, uh, what can I say about Ben Simmons? If he can't handle the pressure of playing in Philadelphia, 
I don't think he would ever be able to handle the pressure of playing in Boston. Why but is actually, that? Boston fans aren't any worse than Philadelphia fans. Philadelphia fans, fans will burn down their city if they win a championship, Bruce. Bostonians ben, are a little more civilized. Uh, I would say that it's a very, very close call between those <laughs> two. Uh, because in, unlike Philadelphia, where the franchise has had some history of success, in Boston, the, the expectations are much higher. It's like with the Lakers, you know, or, or, you know, with any franchise that's been had, you know, multiple eras of dominance. You know, if you're not going to the finals, the season is like kind of a meh, you know, and, and the expectations are, you know, we want to win championships. I don't think Ben could ever deal with the kind of, you know, if he was playing poorly and getting booed, it seems that he's a very sensitive sort of guy. Uh, and I think that that would be a problem. And, and certainly, you know, to, to, to think about giving up Jalen Brown, who's a, a two-way, you know, player, plays both ends of the court, all-star, or Jason Tatum, who the Sixers could have drafted, but they chose Markel Fultz instead. I don't think Boston would ever trade either of those two guys. And quite honestly, you mentioned it in the beginning of this discussion here, Philadelphia is off to a really, really excellent start. They're eight and three. Um, Tyrese Maxey has been their point guard, right? Tyrese Maxey is putting up some numbers. He's playing 35 minutes, is averaging, you know, 14 points, uh, like three and a half rebounds, 4.7 assists. He makes free throws. He's a point guard who makes free throws, 82% from the line. Three to one assist to turnover ratio, can make threes, shooting almost 37%. I don't think pretty soon people in Philly are going to be saying Ben who, because the longer he kind of is not a presence and the team is doing well, and it's not like they haven't had some things to overcome. I mean, yeah. Joel Embiid is now in the COVID protocol. Um, Tobias Harris has missed a bunch of games for the protocol. And oh, by the way, they got a curry of their own who is just lighting it up. Seth Curry is averaging nearly 17 a game, shooting 48% from downtown, 48%. Ridiculous numbers. So yeah, Ben who? We don't want him in Boston. Thank you very much. I've never understood why the brother Curry has been such a journeyman because he has had decent numbers and a lot of his previous stops. I mean, I remember when he was with the Mavs, he was successful. And for whatever reason, he has just not been able to stick with the team. So it's been good to see him succeeding. Bruce, we talked a little bit about the dynasty that is the Warriors in the middle part of this show. We're going to talk about another dynasty in the Chicago Bulls. Do you have any favorite memories of that Bulls team? Something that maybe we didn't talk about when we did all that last dance stuff a little bit more than a year and a half ago, but as we kind of lead into talking about the Chicago bulls and that dynasty, do you have any favorite moments? Well, I, you know, in my years at ESPN uh, for many of those years, 21 of them, in fact, I would oversee sports centers coverage of the NBA finals. So I was, I, I, my first year doing that was 1994. So I missed the first three bulls championships, but 96, 97, 98, I was right in the middle of that. And of course, the 96 team that went 72 and 10 was a remarkable team uh, and was just you, you, you every night you would watch it, you'd hear like the music for the introductions, the Alan Parsons project, you know, and, you know, that that was like just electric in the Chicago Stadium. And of course, you know, uh, crossing over to my Celtics, uh, you know, 
memories. 1986 playoffs, Boston won it that year, but that was the year Michael Jordan had 63 points in a playoff game against the Celtics. And I believe Larry Bird made some comment. Again, this was really before Michael was really, really, really Michael. This is 1986, not 96. And he said, I just saw God and he was wearing Michael Jordan's uniform or something like that. It's not an exact quote. So yes, I mean, the Bulls were always, it was covering them during those championship years was unbelievable. So exciting. Um, and I think every basketball fan has a, a Bulls or a Michael memory. What about you, Aaron? So I was actually having this conversation with uh, someone that I work for, work with with my full-time job and he was a jazz fan and i asked him specifically if he felt like michael jordan was actually sick during the flu game and he and he lives in salt lake city longtime jazz fan and he told me this story about how that game ruined his childhood growing up and how michael jordan just absolutely crushed his hopes and dreams. And he told me, he goes, Aaron, I'm going to tell you a story. Growing up, I always thought to myself that if I ever had an opportunity to meet Michael Jordan in real life, I would tell him how much he ruined my childhood. And I would <laughs> let him know every single moment that was crushed. And I go, well, that's, that's interesting. Do you ever meet Michael Jordan? He goes, I did. I was walking into a hotel one time, you know how they have the like roundabout doors that spin. Uh -huh. yep. And he goes, I was going through the door and I bumped in to this really tall guy and I looked up and it was Michael Jordan. And I go, well, did you say anything to him? And he goes, no, I <laughs> cowered away. <laughs> and so, you know, Michael Jordan in that flu game is one of my all time favorite moments. I think just watching jazz fans cry was great. It reminds me a lot of Missouri fans, but with that, Let's go ahead and talk a little bit more about the Chicago Bulls and one of its all-time greats. The new book, Unguarded, a biography on Scottie Pippen, was released on Tuesday and has gotten a lot of buzz. Joining us to talk about it is its co-author, Michael Arkush. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, I guess first off, let's start this off with probably the simplest question that I think we could ask. How did you and Scottie Pippen come together to create this? Well, my agent... Uh called me one day and mentioned that Scotty was uh, it, possibly interested in doing a book. And we wound up meeting at a hotel um, restaurant in LA and had a tremendous conversation and uh, met about three or four more times. And the key thing in, in, in all these uh, people I work with is what's the rapport like initially? I mean, you're gonna spend a year and a half with somebody. You wanna make sure it's somebody you can connect with and feel comfortable with. I felt comfortable with Scotty within 30 seconds. It was amazing. So I was very excited by it, and we had some nice conversations at first, and then from there, I wrote a proposal that was then sh shopped around to different publishing houses, and then we got a deal and moved on. So, Michael, um, what do you feel that Scotty really wanted to sort of get out there about himself uh, in this book? Um, you know, there are a number of themes, and, and you can see when you watch the news reports on on. Today Show and Good Morning America and everything he's on these days, the last couple of days for sure. The team game. I mean, he is the epitome of a team basketball player. And I think, and he's mentioned about the documentary, was what he really wants people to remember is the Bulls won as a team, not as one individual. And he played that way. I mean, it, 
it would be hard pressed to find great players who are more team oriented than he was. Would you agree with that? He was an ideal teammate because he always did everything that needed to be done to get the wins, even sacrificing some of his own individual numbers. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that was important. I think he wanted, I, I think he's aware. I know he's aware of the remarkable story he's gone through. We can talk more about that, just what he's overcome. And I think it's really important for young people, especially today, to realize that even if you have all these incredible obstacles, there is a path for you if you continue to believe in yourself and you put in the work. And he's done, he did both those things for years, still does. And Michael, that's, that's a really interesting point is when Pippin looks back at this book, what are some of the things that he wants people to take away from it? I think, I think, yeah, I think people, he wants people to see that, that you can achieve a I mean, it sounds so cliche ish. I get it, but it's so true that you can achieve amazing things. If you really continue to believe in yourself and there'll be people, there'll be, there'll be obstacles along the way. And there were for him, I mean, kicked off his team in high school, no college scholarship, a lot of things that, Many people would have said, that's it. I'm not going to keep going. He kept going. And I want he, I think he wants people to realize that that journey is possible for all of us, really, in whatever profession we're in. So Scotty comes from Arkansas, a very rural part of Arkansas, and had a very, you know, challenging upbringing for a variety of reasons, one of 12 children, et cetera, et cetera. So what aspects of his early life uh, do you feel shaped who he became and what he became as a, as a player and what kind of a person he is now? Well, a couple of things. Being one of 12 kids, he understood what all his brothers and sisters needed at every moment. He was there for them and they were there for him. And I think he understood how one in 12, isn't ironic, one in 12 members of a family, one in 12 members of a basketball team. And he really got to understand what is what it entailed to what role, making sure that you play your role, that you keep it to your role, and everybody understands what your role is, so they accept that. So he understood that. I think also that nothing is, can be taken for granted. I mean, he lost his brother paralyzed, his father a stroke. Those are two big things to deal with that he that surrounded his house that were sort of the, the focal point of so much of his early years, and I think he never lost sight of that. You know, my, Michael, the, the word that keeps coming to mind when I hear you and Bruce speak about this is perseverance. I mean, and Scotty Pippen is kind of the epitome of the word perseverance, right? So who were some of his early influences growing up? Like, like when he looks back at that time and he's dealing with so many things that a young teenager, I think a lot of times struggle with who, who were some of his influences during that time? There, there, are, there are many. Um, there, there was um, his high school coach, Don Wayne, who was very influential, who made, who made the phone call to, the, the coach that, Don, that he had in, in college, Don Dyer at Central Arkansas, who gave Scotty a tryout. Coach Dyer was very influential. Uh, Arch Jones was an assistant coach at Central Arkansas, was incredibly helpful to Scotty. Um, Marty Blake was very helpful. Marty, the great director of NBA scouting. Bruce, you remember him, of course, right? And, and, and what he was able, he made sure that all the, you know, he put out the word, that, come on to NBA general managers, come see this guy. There is one after another person who came into Scotty's life at the right time and it made everything possible. And one of those people certainly has to be that relationship with Michael Jordan, right? Like the two of them throughout their time as members of the Chicago Bulls were like Batman and Robin. 
how would you characterize that relationship with the two of them and kind of looking back through some of the excerpts that have been released from this book and some of the stories that were told during the last dance, how has that, how was that relationship then? And do you ever see them kind of mending it a little bit going? Well, I can't predict the future, uh, but, but I can say that Scott, that Scotty has incredible respect for Michael as a basketball player and on the court, they were amazingly close and they were in sync. They seemed to know, as what each other was going to do at every moment. It was remarkable. It's just that they weren't incredibly close off the course. Um, and there's no crime in that. I mean, you know, one thing we, it's in the book that you can't force that kind of thing. It's either there or not. The, I think the important thing is how much they, they bonded together on the court. And, and, and I, I know Scotty has great respect for Michael. And I know Michael has great respect for Scotty. I just think that we, the fan, as fans all the time, we expect our, our heroes to be automatically close in these situations. And it just, it's not exactly the case in here. Did Scotty ever speak to how he managed those two different relationships, the on the court and the off the court relationship with MJ? Um, I, I think Scotty was so, you see, the, his, the people he's been closest to his whole life really been, again, his family. So, I mean, he, when the off season came, he'd go to Arkansas, he'd hang out with them. I don't think he necessarily thought a lot about what what what's my relationship like with Michael at any moment I think he yeah. he, he he was his family that, that he's really cared about and and to this day I mean they're really so close to him so Michael and Scotty were the big two on the court during the Bulls glory years the big two off the court were really head coach Phil Jackson and general manager Jerry Krause now mm-hmm. not too many people in the organization really like Jerry Krause a whole lot for reasons that have been explained and some unfairly. But Phil Jackson has always been considered the Zen master, perhaps one of the top two or three greatest NBA coaches of all time, maybe number one in a lot of people's minds. So, you know, a few months ago when when Scotty was on with Dan Patrick, he called out Phil basically, you know, came out and pretty much called him a racist. Can you tell us, give us a little more insight into Scotty's relationship uh, with Phil in particular, but also with Jerry, whom he was negotiating contracts or his folks were negotiating contracts against? What was what was the dynamic between Scotty and management with those two? Well, I, I, Scotty had a lot of issues with management. It's been well chronicled. I mean, it, it, you know, it's many, you saw in the doc and you've seen many times how much he was underpaid for all those years in Chicago. Later on, when he signed with Houston, he got a nice, really nice paycheck, but he was underpaid for a long time. So there were obviously tensions and disappointments with Jerry, with management, with what going on. Um, with Phil, he had a great relationship. You know, people bring up the 1.8 seconds and all that. But as Scotty has said, he, it, over it, in, even in a recent interview, by and large, his relationship with, with Phil over all those years was excellent. And he has great, again, like with Michael, he has great respect for Phil. Were you able uh, to talk to Phil Jackson at all as part of the book, or is he not really talking about uh, Scotty? No, I've spoken to Phil about Scotty, definitely. I mean, I've talked to a number of different people, got their in, basically just to kind of get some sense of certain things that maybe, and go back to Scotty with and, and, and ask him about, but just certain details and facts over the years. Phil was definitely spoke to him, yeah. Michael, who were some of the tough to reach people that you were able to get for this? Tough to reach, meaning. I yeah, did just, reach- yeah, just like maybe interviews that people hadn't heard from in a long time or people that we you know, haven't the, spoken the, to I'll in a while. The, I'll take the most rewarding thing. It wasn't the Bulls. I mean, it was great talking to ex-Bulls, but it was really talking to people who knew Scotty 
at a, at a formative point in his life, not just his family, but his high school classmates, his college uh, teammates. They have enormous respect for him, great memories, great moments that they, they treasure with him. Um, that, was, that was a thrill for me to be able to connect with them. What were some of the stories his high school classmates had to say? Um, just sort of, um, just sort of how a, a, a great teammate he was. How I think what he saw in the Bulls and how he nurtured other people, he did even back then. Um, mostly about that and just sort of just what he fun going and and lively and um, how great he was. You know, great story about his first dunk, things like that. They were wonderful. Were there any of his teammates on the Bulls that he was particularly close with? Uh, and if so, who were those guys and, and what was their bond? Well, I mean, early on, Horace, Horace Grant and him drafted in the same class, rookies together, bonded tremendously. They were there for each other. Um, the, the transition from college ball to the NBA is really, really tough, especially for somebody who, you know, from, this, from maybe a smaller school who wasn't used to that kind of, wasn't used to all those fans in one place. I mean, and Horace and him, I mean, I think the success of both him and Horace was so much about them bonding together those first few years. So, um, and later on, he was friendly with so many of them, Steve Kerr, Dennis Rodman, um, go through the whole list. He, 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 he loved them all really. Without revealing too, too much that takes place in the course of the book, because I, I, I know the goal is to get people to buy and read the book and kind of go through it on their own. But is there a story or two that particularly sticks out that you would like to share that when you sat down with Pippen or you sat down with a former teammate really opened your eyes and you're like, that's a big moment. I think a big moment is when he was kicked off his team in high school and um, one, he was able to get back to high, to the team. But one of the conditions from the high school coach was he had to run in the bleachers. He had to, after practice, he'd have to go and run up these stairs. And there was a day in which he was really, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. And some of his teammates happened to be nearby and they basically said, come on, Pip, you can do it. And he did it. And you wonder, I mean, we're all at points in our lives where if we had made one choice instead of another, who knows what would have happened. And I mean, I'm not saying he, that his basketball career would have been over if the coach had seen him not do the laps a day, but you never know these things. And I think that was very moving because he was, he realized how fortunate he was to be in his position and he never forgot that. Michael, I had some limited dealings with Scotty when I was at my uh, ESPN stage of my career. Scotty came to us uh, as an analyst to work on some ABC games. He was a big, big name, and ESPN always likes to get big, big names uh, for analysts. And when he first started out, he sounded kind of like the Scotty Pippen we all remembered as a player. Um, not necessarily super polished as a communicator, but... Then towards the end of his time working, when he would be on the jump with Rachel Nichols, he was so much better. I mean, he had polished up his delivery. He was completing his thoughts and his words much better. I thought to myself, this is a superior version of Scottie Pippen. And I always wanted to, you know, publicly somehow or another, give this guy some credit for that because what he started out as and what he became I just thought the, the the transformation was tremendous. Does he see himself as having any sort of a, a future down the road doing analysis? Is that something he's interested in? Or has he got other business, you know, things going on that he's going to pursue uh, I mean, rather than that? Yeah, 
I think all things are possible, but I think what really the centerpiece of his life right now, it's so, you know, I, I, I hate, hate to do this, but it really is his family, it's his kids. He sees him, the role he sees himself in at number one is father. And he's been great at it. And I think he takes a lot of pleasure and satisfaction in that. And, and I don't want to play, I heard you, I think in one thing, talk about not wanting to be an amateur shrink. And, and I feel the same way. It's a very dangerous place to be. But I think the fact that he suffered because his dad wasn't able to be there through no fault of his own for him for those last few years in high school, I think he really understands how important it is for him to be there for his so one of our colleagues here at Pure Hoops Media is B.J. Armstrong, obviously one of the, 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 the original gangsters of the Bulls dynasty. Any Scotty B.J. stories you can share with us uh, that, we can, that, we can, that we can run by B.J. at some point? I don't have a particular B.J. story, but, but um, B.J., as you know, he's fabulous. And, and um, Scotty has great respect for him as well. So, but I'm sorry, I don't have a, a great B.J. story for you. <laughs> Apologize for me, please. That's okay. I heard Bill Cartwright on some other podcast a couple of days ago, and they asked him about B.J. Armstrong, and he's here. Oh, you mean Benny? It's like, I've never uh, heard him called Benny before. I think I'll have to call him Benny next time I talk to him. But, you know, it, I'm glad you brought him up, because when you think we think of Scott and Michael, we think of Scotty, but look at all the other players around that franchise in those glory years, how special all of them were. Um, it's remarkable, really. So how long did you work on this book? And, and a rough estimate, just how many people did you speak to? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know how many. I, uh, rough estimate, I spoke, I don't know. I'll have to, let me think about the number of people. Let me ask yeah. you another question. The, in terms of how long, we probably spent, uh, from the first interview, once we had the deal, probably spent about, I was probably about a year and a half on it. That's how long these projects take, though. Yeah. Um, I've, it, it, I mean, I think it's really important. You really have to get to know the person and make sure this isn't like a you know a profile for a magazine. You have to really go over things a million times to feel like you've connected and gotten that, the essence of everything you want in there. Um, I was going to say, Michael, because that's one of the hard things that, that I think people who aren't writers or who have never written a book don't fully understand what the workflow is like for something like this. And, and you're right. It's not one or two sit downs. It's multiple months. It's, right. you know, parts of your life too, that you've right. taken out to write this book. And like, so, so I, I guess a follow-up question would be how many days do you think you spent with Pippin or just what were some well, of those moments like during those sit downs with him? Well, unfortunately we spent, we started off spending quite a few time, quite a few days together, but then with COVID we then, we, we then went into zoom. Okay. So, um, you know, it's unfortunate, but um, I had plenty of time with him in person. And it, and Zoom is great and all that, but there's nothing like that time when you're with somebody in person going through things. So, but it, early on, when we were first forming our, our, our collaboration, we spent a lot of time personally together. So I think that really made it easy to then transition to Zoom later on. But, oh. but it, it, let me just say, it was an absolute blast. I mean, he is so much fun to work with. Such a great guy. So interesting. Um, uh, what a joy. So, Michael, tell uh, our listeners how they can purchase a copy of your book and anything else you would like to promote from it to tease us and give us a reason to put our money down and, and grab a copy of this. How can we how can we get your book? OK, the best way is to go on Amazon 
basically it's, it's listed there uh, unguarded uh, just came out today. Um, as far as a tease, I, I guess it's just a general, I, I'm going to repeat myself a little bit, but he's engaging. He's, he's, he, he, he takes time to really think about things and, and consider all the different, um, I don't know, he's so sensitive and thoughtful in so many ways. And I think people will really enjoy con connecting with him and seeing his life in basketball and away from basketball. Michael, this has been a lot of fun. I greatly appreciate you taking the time to join both Bruce and I, and we will definitely get a copy of your book, Unguarded. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. That was dope. Special thanks to Michael Arkush for joining us here on Catch and Shoot 2.0. Just a reminder, check out his book, Unguarded. You can find it on Amazon or in any of your local bookstores. Uh, Bruce, one thing, sitting there, listening to him talk about Scottie Pippen. Obviously, I was very young in the Bulls dynasty, or at least I like to think that I was relatively young when the Bulls dynasty was happening. You know, I was probably like an eight-year-old running around in my little Bulls jersey, right? Because Kansas City didn't have an NBA team. But I, I was, I, I mentioned that word perseverance for Scottie Pippen and how it almost really felt like that was his word and his mantra. And it made me think about all the things that he came up that he battled through, not only through his high school days, but through his college days, and then just eventually getting to the NBA. I don't know. I mean, there's certainly athlete stories like that, but with how players move around in high school and in the college ranks today, I don't know if we will ever truly get a Scottie Pippen story like that. I, I you know, that, that, that was just kind of my thought as I was sitting there listening. It's like thinking of how much this kid overcame, where he got, playing at a small school, getting to the NBA. Now, it just feels like a player would either change high schools, go to prep school, enter the transfer portal. I don't know. I don't know. That was just my thought. No, I mean, Scotty really did come out of nowhere. I mean, Jerry Krause knew all about him. Uh and actually, the, the night he was drafted, I'm pretty sure he was drafted by Seattle and then traded, I think, and I didn't look this up, but if my memory serves me right, he was traded for Olden, Olden Polonese on draft night, who the Bulls drafted. So Scotty, you know, was somebody that we never really heard much about him. Um, and, you know, over the course of his career and in his post-career, you know, one of the things I'm really looking forward to reading in Michael's book is how, you know, We've always seen Scotty as somebody who sort of does a poor job with PR and personal branding. You know, he'd say things, get himself in hot water. But I think what we might find out in reading Michael's book is that Scotty is a much different person than the one who's kind of made these very public gaffes and, you know, did some things, you know, like sitting down against the Knicks in the 94 playoffs when Phil called the play for Tony Kukoc. Um, I think uh, I think we're going to be finding some nice surprises and some great insight into Scotty. So I'm looking forward to reading the book, and I know I totally expect it to do well, Aaron. Yeah, you probably got a free copy. I have it sitting in my cart right now so that I can check out and order it. But, you know, Bruce gets the hookup. He always gets the hookup. Um, anyway, from one story to the next, it seems like um, – I, I, I don't know. These stories are becoming far too common within professional franchises, you know, whether it's the Washington football team, whether it's the Los Angeles Clippers, whether it's now the Phoenix Suns and Robert Sarver, 
What are your thoughts on the story that ESPN broke last week? I, I'd feel like we'd be doing an injustice if we didn't mention it, but just, I wanted to see if you had any takes before I kind of give my thoughts. Well, I read Baxter Holmes's piece on ESPN.com and Baxter is interviewed, I think 70 people for the story. Yeah. Um, and while there's nothing like we saw with Donald Sterling and the Clippers, where there's an audio tape of him clearly making racist statements, um, you know, it's one of those deals that, you know, if there's a lot of smoke, it's very possible that there's a fire. I know the league is planning to do a thorough investigation. And if it turns out that a lot of these allegations about racism, sexism, toxic work environment, if it turns out that there's overwhelming proof that this is going to happen, then I would say that the league has got to look at the Donald Sterling precedent that they set, you know, back in 2014, and perhaps force Robert Sarver to sell the team if a lot of this stuff is happening. Because here's the thing. First of all, Racists are the lowest form of life, as far as I'm concerned. And a racist owning, governing, whatever you want to call it, an NBA team, if you're a racist in a sport that's 80% African-American and, you know, Black men from different countries, you don't belong in that sport if you're a racist, Aaron. 100%. And, and just to build off this, Bruce, because a lot of people are going to look at this <clears throat> and say... How could the infrastructure of the Phoenix Suns front office allow that to happen, right? Like, like how can things permeate through a culture that is manifested from the top down? And the way I set that up for you was very deliberate because I believe, and I've thought this for a while, we get too many stories like this in professional sports and you'll, you'll get them within companies in the private sector, right? Like, like this is not a sports only issue. This happens through many companies and sports franchises are private companies. They are not publicly shared companies, but I've always had this issue with if the league is there, right. And, and you pointed this out to me off mic, like Adam silver works for the owners, right? But Adam Silver also has a responsibility to oversee the health and safety and the brand perception of the National Basketball Association, just like Roger Goodell does of the NFL, um, just like um, the baseball commissioner does as well. Who's Rob Manfred. Of, yeah, Rob Manfred does for Major League Baseball. I've never understood why those leagues can't put together a task force that goes around and monitors the health of an organization once or twice a year. Like, like if you're there to oversee, not just what happens with your brand, what happens with your memorabilia, what happens with your championships, your playoffs, et cetera, et cetera. Then you can also make sure that the people who are representing your league within their teams and their cities are also being taken care of, not just on the court, but in the front office and their personal buildings. And because I do think that sometimes like if we just look closely or if a governing body is there, things like this don't happen. Right. Like if you see an authoritative figure, if there's a hall monitor, for instance, right, Bruce, like, like you're walking down the hall and you're out of class and you're skipping and you're like, Oh man, crap. Hall monitors there. You start thinking twice about it. Right. I just have never understood why as a league, 
everything is so reactionary because it shouldn't be that way and it's not okay. That, that's, that's my soliloquy. So, no, I mean, look, uh, we're, I think as a society in the United States, we've become much more sort of sensitive to the feelings of the people that we work with. And we should, 100%. Right? I mean, I mean, I've been in the media business for, you know, 40 plus years, and I've seen some of the biggest jerks you can imagine get away with stuff. And, and I would never name names, but some people that treated people absolutely awful, that were sexual predators that, you know, so, I mean, I think, I don't think this is anything unique to the world of the NBA or the 100%. NFL or whatever. I think it's in general as a society, hopefully we're evolving to the point where we treat each other better and we call people out when they're not treating people right. And uh, I'm not talking about unfairly. I'm just talking about, you know, just don't be a jerk. What's, uh, what's the great Otto Strong always say? Just love thy neighbor, man. Just love thy neighbor. Treat everybody we miss you, Otto. We do miss Otto. We miss well, Otto. Bruce, you ready to wrap this one up? Yeah, but before we do, before Ooh. we do, Ooh. college basketball begins. And I know we talked a little bit about our favorite moments. Kansas is like ranked really high in the preseason poll, right? They're like in second oh. or third well, in the ESPN we're, we're, poll. We're third, we're third in the AP poll. Okay. So. Uh, uh, are you buying higher. them or selling them? So I'm going to buy this year's team. He, so here's my hesitancy. I watched a lot of Kansas basketball last year, and I had a lot of frustrations with Bill Self's Jayhawks. And a lot of it was the way that the roster was constructed. They didn't have a lot of shooting. They didn't have a point guard. Their best player was a defender that couldn't shoot. But he was, like, the best defender in college basketball. So, like, there's, there's like, a catch-22, right? This year's team feels very different. Their second five is a group of guards, highly ranked prospects that have come in. They've used the transfer portal to their advantage. And so I think their second five is going to be as good as a lot of teams that they face first five. And Bruce, it doesn't hurt that they went out and they got the best point guard available through the transfer portal and Remy Martin, who I'm going to put this out here. So while we're taping this, it's 39 to 32 at the half. Jayhawks are currently on top of the Michigan State Spartans. Remy Martin does not have a shot attempt, and he has two rebounds and two assists, and he's their best player, and they're up seven. Remy Martin. Remy Martin. I'll drink to that. See what I did there? <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. What do you think, Bruce? You buying the Jayhawks in the Final Four? You can just say yes. Yes. Uh, there we go. There we go. It's a happy show. It's a happy show. We got our Kansas quota in. Dan Kramer is saying Syracuse by 26 over Lafayette. Uh, whatever. We don't care about the orange. They're not going to. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. I'll let you guys have your fun. Now it's time to have my fun as we wrap things up. First off, big thanks to Michael Arkish, co-author of Unguarded. Scotty Pippen's biography for coming on with us today. He shared some truly insightful stories, not only about what it took to put that book together, but about some of the stories that were maybe eye-opening to him. And as always, a special thanks to our producer. His name is Dan Kramer. He's watching that Syracuse Orange game very tightly tonight, and he will never let me forget that Syracuse topped the Jayhawks in 2003 on the strength of a Hakeem work block. 
Anyway, also we want to <laughs> we also want to send out a special thanks to our editor Drew Rich, who is also a fellow Jayhawk, and also big ups to our king of content, our CCO, and our executive producer. He is the double B. He is Bruce Bernstein for stepping in and co-hosting with me this week, and for the rest of all of us here that Pure Hoops Media has to offer. The Mike Wise Show each week brings you entertaining takes, incredible stories, and high-level guests. And the Mike Wise Show has gone international, so you know. Big time moments happening over there. Monica McNutt and King McClure are back with buckets, boards, and blocks every single Thursday. And BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman have the Pure Hoops podcast on Friday. And Otto and I are back each and every Wednesday with Catch and Shoot 2.0 with your NBA news and nuggets. Bruce, did I miss anything? No, no. It's time for the end of show lecture, which I'm going to keep really, really short. Okay. Get a vaccination. Don't be like Aaron Rodgers. Don't be like Kyrie Irving. Don't sweat and spit and grunt on your teammates if you're unvaccinated. Just get the stupid shot, okay? Protect yourself, protect everyone else. Keep your mind and your thoughts with the uh, frontline workers and the medical folks. That's all I got to say. Just get the shot. I've gotten three of them, okay? And it didn't hurt at all. So you can do it too. And it's not gonna affect me getting pregnant. So don't worry. Uh, For my partner, Aaron Berlin. We're thinking of you, Otto Strong. Looking forward to you coming back next week. For now, I'm Bruce Bernstein. We'll see you guys next time around. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate. Not one based on Carol. She's more focused on hitting a high note than the car in front of her. Why pay a rate based on anyone else? Get one based on you with DriveWise from Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California. Subject to terms and conditions. Rates are determined by several factors which vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for purposes of rating. While in some states, your rate could increase with high-risk driving. Generally, safer drivers will save with DriveWise. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates Northbrook, Illinois.